Earlier this year, governments from across the world came together for COP26, the annual conference on climate change and the environment. But rather than a celebration of the glorious planet and a global consensus for governments to do everything they can to save it, the conference left deep divisions, with already rich countries selling out poorer ones for the sake of the fossil fuel industry. On this week's episode of Pushback Talks, we're joined by David Boyd, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, the world's top watchdog. David is at the center of global debates and offers us a fresh perspective. Speaking from an island off the coast of Canada's British Columbia, the Special Rapporteur discusses the connections between climate inaction and the deep harm caused across the globe, from health concerns to the disappearance of entire nation-states and the forced relocation of millions as a matter of survival. I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And that's how we start the pushback talks. So Leilani, the winter is coming. We've just had a big COP meeting where some people were really happy and some were less happy. And how did you feel about all that? Well, I think I'm in the camp of the disappointed. I think, you know, the leaders aren't doing what they're supposed to do, which is lead which is what the uh, Prime Minister of Barbados said so eloquently. I think that the Global South is suffering because of this northern leadership. And I think they're suffering in so many ways right now with the pandemic too. So it just feel, it felt crappy to me. That's my an analysis, kind of crappy. Okay, that's good. That's a good start. The Global South against the Global North. So that's why we are today in Pushback Talks are going to connect the Global North to talk about this. Uh, I'm in Malmo, Sweden. You're in a bunker in Ottawa, Canada. And then out on a small island outside of Vancouver Island, we have David Boyd, who is a UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Environment. Uh, welcome to Pushback Talks, uh, David. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be joining you. Welcome, David. Uh, I saw you tweeting after the, the COP meeting. And so my first question, why are you so angry and disappointed? I was angry after COP26 because we're living in a global climate emergency. And the politicians, the negotiators, the leaders at COP26, you know, Greta Thunberg's phrase, blah, 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 that really sums it up. We, we have this colossal gap between the action that's urgently required to protect people, particularly in the global south, small island developing states, coastal nations, the poorest countries in the world, the most vulnerable people in the world are suffering immense damages and loss today from the climate crisis. And we have these, you know, kind of existential conversations about net zero 2050 and blah, blah, blah. And so that for me was the, the terrific frustration is that we come together every year for these conferences of the parties. And for 25, now 26 years, politicians have been making these ridiculous promises and commitments, and we're not getting the job done. That's, that's some anger. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you. I talked to a dear friend and before the one, just when it started up, and she was a little bit angry with Greta saying blah, blah, blah. How can she say blah, blah, blah just when the meeting hasn't even started? And I, I tried to explain, I think that's the role of Greta, to be there outside pushing people, you know. I mean, she had the right to be angry and to to push the limits a little bit. Well, and I also think, to, let's be clear, like that pressure is building and it's working. So, you know, it, when we came out of Paris, Paris 2015, 
the commitments that countries had in place at that time would have committed us to 3.7 degrees of warming, which would be absolutely catastrophic for every, every, every person and every being on this planet. Now we're at a point where, you know, we've made incremental progress. Now, if countries actually fulfilled the commitments they've made, we'd be at 2.4. And if countries actually fulfill the other uh, commitments that are not yet incorporated in what are called their nationally determined contributions, the commitments that were made, such as, you know, reducing methane emissions, reducing deforestation, these things that were promised at COP26, we'd actually be down to 1.8. So the good news is that in terms of commitments, we're moving in the right direction. But there's still this grand canyon between the commitments that countries make at these conferences and the actions that are happening on the ground. So, you know, one of the big rhetorics in the last two years has been, we're going to build back better. Beautiful phrase, right? Countries have spent more money on fossil fuels, investing in new fossil fuels over the past two years of the pandemic than they've spent on clean, renewable energy. I mean, so that just shows you this, this kind of paradox between what countries are saying and what countries are doing. Leilani, this is, I'm thinking one thing that we, we had here in our podcast before, uh, your predecessor, Raquel Rolding from Brazil, who is also a professor uh, at the University of Sao Paulo. And, and she told you when you took over as the UN Special Rapporteur, Leilani, you should know one thing. You will leave this job angrier year when, when entering. So David, it seems that you're already quite angry. So how would you end your mandate? Yeah, no, but I, so I, think, I think anger can be a constructive force, but I also think that we have to focus on the solutions. And so that's really, that's another thing that is really, so it's kind of this integrating, and Christiana Figueres, the brilliant Costa Rican diplomat, she talks about outrage and optimism. And I think that's a really beautiful way to talk about this because we should be angry to be in solidarity with the people. You know, I've been on country missions to Fiji and Norway and I've gone to Kenya. I've met people who lost their homes in tropical cyclones. I've met people whose livestock have starved to death because of droughts in Kenya. I've met indigenous people in northern Norway where it rains now in the wintertime and the, the reindeer that they've been relying on for thousands of years as the heart of their economy, the heart of their culture, the reindeer's hooves are not evolved to scrape through ice to get at the the food that they need to survive the winter. So, you know, we should be angry because poor and vulnerable and marginalized people are seeing their already difficult lives made worse by the climate crisis. But on the other hand, we have to be optimistic because I believe optimism is as important for human beings as oxygen to keep us going. And so we have to look at things like the fact that the United Nations just last month recognized that for the first time, everyone has the right to live in a healthy environment a right which we've seen has made a transformative difference in countries like Costa Rica. They're at the forefront of these systemic and transformative changes. We're past the point where we can get by with incremental changes. We need what the scientists are saying, which is rapid, systemic, and transformative changes. That's, that's, a, that's a very tall order for humanity, mm. right? We've never done, undergone a deliberate transformation of this magnitude. We have to change our energy system, our food system, our housing system, our transportation system. But the, the thing is, we're actually already doing that. And there's incredible signs of hope on the horizon. If you look at, for example, the growth of solar and wind energy, if you look at the, the rapid 
uptake of electric vehicles. If you look at the construction revolution, net zero buildings in California, the European Union, other places, there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. We just need to, we need to take those seeds of revolution, water them, fertilize them, and make them grow faster than they're growing today. Leilani, I could hear David mentioning something that is really important for you, the human rights of a clean environment. How do you react on this? Well, I mean, it's obviously an historic moment when the United Nations announces through a resolution kind of new articulation of a, of a right, which is the right, the human right to a safe and healthy environment. Uh, is that what it is? Clean, safe, healthy? Safe, clean, healthy and sustainable there environment. There you go. There you go. And why, is the, why is this so well, important? Well, it goes directly to what David said. If you look for me, I mean, David will have his own um, expert analysis, and I am by no means an expert uh, in this area. But what it signals to me is, is exactly what David said. Who is suffering the climate crisis most? Who is most affected? And it's always vulnerable and marginalized groups and that's who is most protected by human rights. That's for whom human rights are so important. And so when you get the United Nations articulating it as a human right, it forces two things, in my opinion, that go exactly to what David said. It forces us to say, how are our vulnerable populations, our disadvantaged populations faring and what are the structural causes? A human rights analysis always goes to the structural causes. So what are the structural causes of the disadvantage experienced by these groups? And, and I feel like a lot of that structural stuff, those conversations are happening. But when David talks, and I've read some of his reports about the experience on the ground of vulnerable groups, that I think keeps getting lost. I, I was so moved during COP26 listening to people from those island nations where like the islands, like they're disappearing, where you're, you're talking to people whose lands, homes, cities, et, et cetera, their entire life is disappearing because it's sinking underwater. It's very moving and we need to keep that in the, I feel we need to keep that in the fore and that human rights lens helps with that. But that's my analysis. I would I would actually would like to wind back a little bit. David, so, I mean, I would like you to, Tell our listeners how you work. You need you go you go on official missions to countries. So what is what what have you just been or where are you going? Tell us a little bit so people can understand your job. It's very to be special reporters. It sounds really funky, but it's nobody really knows what you're doing. Well, I mean, certainly before the pandemic, I did spend a lot of time traveling to those countries that I mentioned to Fiji, to Norway, to Kenya. Uh, the pandemic has been horrible in, in so many ways for so many people. But uh, for me, it's been horrible because I do uh, so many Zoom presentations. So, you know, I think uh, this year I've done over 150 speeches on Zoom, just trying to just trying to talk to people about the right to a healthy environment, what it means, what it could mean for them, what it what kind of obligations it imposes on governments. Um, and, you know, next week I'm headed to the Caribbean to visit the Barbados and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And people think, oh, my God, this guy, you know, he's going to the Caribbean in the middle of the winter. Lucky guy. Well, what happens is you get up at dawn, you spend every hour of, of the day meeting with people, meeting with government officials, meeting with civil society, meeting with judges, meeting with scientists, learning about how the climate crisis is affecting their homes, their livelihoods, their cultures. 
And then, you know, at the end of this visit, after uh, dozens and dozens of these meetings, then I'll produce a, a report that says this is this is what's going on in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And the thing that really is critical and that a lot of people don't understand about human rights is there's a certain magic in human rights, because unlike environmental policy or other things where governments can say, well, we might do this, we might do that, you know, we might we might put a carbon tax in place, we might put some regulations in place. When you talk about human rights, these create legally binding and enforceable obligations. And so to put this in the context of this climate conversation that we're having, you know, countries signed up to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, and they said, we will do everything we can to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the Earth's climate system, because that climate system, the stability of it is fundamental to the well-being of life on Earth, not just of humans, but of all diversity of life on Earth. We know that 29 years later, emissions have gone up 60%. And there's not a single mechanism that you can use under the Framework Convention or the Paris Agreement to hold these governments accountable to what they've committed to do. But when you bring human rights together with that international environmental law, you get almost like a kind of, well, magic or alchemy, because the human rights element brings in processes and mechanisms to hold those governments accountable, to make those obligations meaningful. And so, you know, we've seen that in the Netherlands with the famous Urgenda case, where the Supreme Court of the Netherlands said, you can't just treat these international environmental commitments like they're optional. You have to protect the human rights of your citizens. And that means reducing emissions much more quickly. Same kind of court decision from the German Constitutional Court earlier this year, same kind of decision from the Supreme Court of Colombia. So we're seeing this unprecedented convergence of environmental law and human rights law that frankly, I believe is capable of catalyzing the rapid systemic and transformative changes that we so desperately need. This is really inspirational to hear because I, I know since I've been traveling with Leilani so much and I can see that her language has really been influential in the world of housing. And suddenly all activists and politicians are starting to use it's the human rights of a decent home, of a safe home. And, and that changes the whole conversation. And, and a lot of the success happening around the world now is, is also partly the change of the language into something that is more clear cut. So can you feel that this is now moving in more and more people are getting this? I mean, more politicians. And Certainly activists. more activists. I mean, we had this amazing coalition of over 1,300 civil society organizations, indigenous people's organizations that really coalesced behind this need for the United Nations to recognize the right to a healthy environment. And that I've never seen that kind of a convergence of the, all of these diverse interests. And so now all of those groups are talking about they have the right. People have the right to a healthy environment. That's very empowering. And so really, I think the critical task for the next year, the next three years, the next decade is to take those beautiful, inspiring words and ram them down the throats of government until they do what needs to be done. Ram them down the throats of business leaders until they do what needs to be done. And so, you know, it's it's an exciting time to be working in this field. I'm standing up. I always stand up when we do these podcasts, but I was giving you a standing ovation, David when you were talking about the accountability <laughs> framework that comes with human rights that is unique to human rights. And and I, I just want to underscore that there are few, if any, frameworks that have that built in who is accountable to whom. States are accountable to people. And states, therefore, have legal obligations, have to meet certain norms and standards, 
through human rights law to make the world a place that people can continue to survive in and live in. And, and I love bringing together of our worlds, of the environmental world and the housing world around the human rights framework because they are so obviously connected. Um, but I, I keep talking to people about that. Like, you can talk about social justice, you, you know, fine. But how are you going to compel states to do what they need to do or in all levels of government? And that's what human rights offers so strongly, along with those two other things I said, which is structural change and a focus on vulnerable people. Um, but states have to start leading and recognizing and measuring up to their international human yeah. rights obligations. Yeah. Clearly. And I think if, if there's a lead through environmental stuff, housing will come because housing is is uh, is still not recognized as this big global crisis that it is. But the climate crisis is recognized. I mean, I think that's for sure. Yeah, the climate crisis is recognized. But I really think there's compelling connections between the, the housing crisis and the climate crisis. Right. So, for example, when I was in Fiji, I met people in uh, in one of the first communities in the whole world that had to be entirely relocated. You know, this beautiful, idyllic waterfront village, but, you know, rising sea levels, storm surges, saltwater contamination of their water supply, their, their, their land where they were growing crops. So they had to, they had to lift, lift up and move inland three kilometers. So, you know, and they've built, they've built houses inland that are actually better than the houses they were living in by the water. So there's an improvement there. But there's other human rights issues there. But then I also met people living in these really terrible conditions on the outskirts of Suva, the Fijian capital. And almost every person that I met there had lost their home in tropical cyclone Winston. So there you have climate change robbing these people of their homes, forcing them to live in really like slum-like conditions. You know, with they, the Fijian government, to their credit, has brought electricity into these informal settlements. They've brought... Um, clean drinking water in, but you know these are corrugated metal shacks. One's located beside the ocean, so they're flooding. The other one's beside a river, they're flooding. So the, you know, even though they've got a roof over their heads, they're still in these very difficult conditions. And then you look at a country like Dominica in the Caribbean. Dominica has been hit by two Category Five hurricanes, the highest, strongest level of hurricanes in the last seven years. The first one, Hurricane Erica damaged 90% of the homes. Well, okay, so then people, they, they move mountains to rebuild their homes. Six years later, Hurricane Maria, bang! 90% of the homes damaged again. I mean, meanwhile, the government has to pay for rebuilding the infrastructure, for helping the people rebuild their homes. This is a, this is a small island developing state. Where's the money coming from? You know, like, it just puts them in a literally impossible position. They have to cannibalize the education budget. They have to cannibalize the healthcare budget. They have to go deeper into debt. Now they're paying more interest on the debt. So, you know, this is one of the things that was so frustrating about COP26 is like, where's the money? You know, this is kind of a, where's the money? Where's the, you know, the, the global north, the wealthy countries and wealthy people who have created the climate crisis have, I believe, that, like there's got to be a, an obligation to shift some some of that wealth to help countries like Dominica and Fiji rebuild. And that that conversation has been going on for three decades, but there's still no money changing hands. Let's talk about the money, because the people who with money, they have more than ever. And and a lot of the money goes into speculation and they put it a lot of into real estate. And I, I so that your, your uh, representative at, uh, at the COP, uh, Juliette uh, Peruca, she talked in our podcast about 
that all of these condos being built that stand empty, they're actually also taking from the, the resources of our planet to just to stand empty. It's, that's how they, they spend money, but they also spend the planet. That really provokes me. I think I would go to talk about, about the, the legal language that you are into, is that it has also turned into a tactics now of, the, of many movements that actually going after and, and suing companies, suing states. This happens both environmental. I mean, in, in the Netherlands, they've been suing the Shell company. And in Germany, there are legal cases in the housing areas. So can you see this also as a growing tool for movements? People ask me, why did it take so long for the United Nations to recognize the right to health human? The, real, the, the reason is because it's a very powerful tool. And we've already seen for the first time the, the resolution from the United Nations was cited by the Constitutional Court of Costa Rica last week in a case involving a, a pesticide that's killing bees. So, yes, it's, it, it, litigation is a powerful tool. Litigation has been a powerful tool for social movements dating back to the abolitionists who used litigation to bring about the end of slavery, right? But I also think that when we talk about human rights, litigation is kind of like, it's the it's the last resort, right? If, if I have a right to a healthy environment, then my government has an obligation to make sure that there's clean air, that there's safe drinking water, that there's sustainably produced food, that there's non-toxic environments where people live, that there's a safe climate, and that there's healthy ecosystems and biodiversity. A government in, a, in an ideal world would take the actions required to fulfill those obligations. And so, Actually, that's what's happening in Costa Rica. The government is doing what's, you know, they're moving. They've got 99% of their electricity now coming from renewable energy sources. They're working on transportation. They're, they're delivering on those obligations. But where, where governments fail to live up to those obligations, then, you know, people in the streets putting pressure on, that's important. People in the courts putting pressure on, that's important. It's really like we have to use, in, in an emergency, you use every tool that you have, right? You don't leave anything sitting on the shelf. You take every tool that you have and you apply it to its maximum possibilities. And that's that's what we're seeing now. And, and India was obviously a disappointment at the COP with the, with the, 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 the coal issue. And, and now there's a toxic smog over Delhi. It seems like there's almost a little connection there. Yeah, a little connection. <laughs> well, this is, another, this is another source of frustration, frankly, for me, is the fact that every single year, 7 million people die because of air pollution. And we've been in this pandemic now for like 18 months or whatever it is, between five and six million people have died, which is absolutely horrible. But every single year, more people die from air pollution than have died in the COVID-19 pandemic. But they're invisible because they're poor, because they're black, because they're indigenous, the majority of them. And so this is something that we really need to overcome. And that's, again, coming back to the right to a healthy environment, a critical element of that is clean air for people to breathe. And it's connected to the climate crisis, because if we stopped burning these fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas, then that number of premature deaths would be instantly cut in half. We would save millions of lives every year by phasing out fossil fuels. And India, you know, you mentioned India kind of ended up being the villain of COP26. That, that's, just, that's just wrong. The villain of COP26 is the rich countries that have created this crisis and are not doing enough to solve it. So, you know, sure, I'll slap India on the wrist for changing a one word in the final declaration, but 
for the love of God, people. It's the United States, it's the Europeans, it's Canada, it's the, it's the Middle Eastern countries. These are the countries that have created this global crisis. These are the countries that have to open their wallets and their bank accounts and help the people of the global south to overcome this crisis, to survive this crisis and to rebuild their societies and to become flourishing, sustainable countries where people enjoy a decent quality of life. It's, of course, also an imported model from our side. I, I made a film called Bikes Versus Cars, so it's like about the lobby-driven city planning. And it's obvious, I mean, Delhi is now, nobody moves, it's all toxic. But I mean, the car explosion in India is quite recent, you know. So it's uh, it's copied from our systems that are haven't, haven't been functioning for right. many, many years. And just to continue to connect the dots, when I think about, when I read this morning, for example, about the air pollution in India, and um, the government's response has been to close down industry, to keep children at home, and then I start thinking about all the people who are living in deplorable conditions where they cannot be protected from air pollution from by their homes because they are living on the pavements and don't ho have homes. Many people I met in Delhi living on pavements and don't have homes that would protect them from air pollution. And it gets me thinking about the finance conversation around, you know, we've built these models of housing and city development, urbanization um, that privilege those with wealth and that result in greater levels of homelessness and housing precarity. And there's just a complete interaction with climate crises in that regard. So we screw people over and don't ensure that they have access to adequate housing. And then we screw the environment, <laughs> we governments, and, and create climate crises, manufactured climate crises, then is like double jeopardy for the people who are already poorly housed. You know, and then when I start thinking, okay, I am an optimist and I do think change is possible and I see things are changing. But unless we understand all of these connections and create some whole, you can't tinker with the environment and not deal with housing if you want to have good outcomes. You can't tinker with housing and not deal with the environment if you want to have good outcomes. And then I worry, I'll just say this, this is my last thing, this is my worry on the finance front you know, a lot of city governments say to me, and even national level governments say to me, if we're going to make our 2030 sustainable development goals, and if we're going to reach, you know, goals for uh, zero net emissions, etc., we don't have the money. We're poor government. We don't have the money. And so we're going to invite in the privates, private equity that has a lot of liquidity. And I'm thinking... Are you kidding me? So you're going to invite in the perpetrators of so many of the social problems we're seeing and environmental problems we're seeing. I mean, Fr Frederick and I talk a lot about a company called Blackstone that's bad on housing and bad on the environment. They help to burn down the Amazon. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, like this is the finance question is very, very important in both of our worlds. Let me add with Blackstone, because I think the interesting with the big concentration of wealth and in these hedge funds or private equity funds that they actually sit in the boards of thousands of companies so they they actually have a lot of power and influence to change make a hell of a difference so i mean but they don't because their 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 focus is something totally different it's only 
to move out with the max profit all the time, which is, of course, problematic. Uh, I know you say in, in push that you're not against capitalism. You're, you're against this kind of extreme capitalism on steroids. How, how is your relation to capitalism, yeah, I David? Think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, capitalism has a lot of problems baked into it, but I think there's different models of capitalism, right? So, I mean, the kind of predatory capitalism that we're talking about, like the Blackstones of the yeah. world, that's that just has to change. And the only way that we're exactly. going to change that is through changing the laws that govern those kinds of corporations and their activities. But, you know, there's also the kind of kinder, gentler capitalism that we see in, in the Scandinavian countries to some degree, right? I mean, you, you're, you're a Swede, you may disagree with that, but, you know, the, 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 <laughs> it, it does appear, at least from a distance, that there's a different type of corporate model that's much more a social, that has much greater social benefits, right? Where there's, if I take the example of Norway, for example, so Norway has, has, has developed, yes, they have developed an oil and gas industry that has created tremendous wealth, but unlike other places where that wealth goes to corporations and then to shareholders and so concentrates in, in, in a small number of incredibly wealthy people, in Norway, the public has gained enormous benefit from the development of that industry. Now, they've reached a point in, in human and ecological history where that has to change, but at least it's been done in a way that has been relatively environmentally responsible with great social benefit. I think it's the difference between the private benefits and the public benefits where there's these different models of capitalism show their stripes. And we keep coming back to this, interestingly enough, this issue of money, right? So the prescription for the past hundred years has been, well, let's just grow the economy and the pie will get bigger. But what we're seeing is, yes, the economy continues to grow, the pie gets bigger, but the same people are taking bigger and bigger slices and the people who don't have anything but crumbs are still stuck with the crumbs. So at some point we have to realize, you know, we can't grow our way out of this. We're destroying the planet in the process of trying to make the pie bigger. And I think a growing number of people realized with the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the water crisis, that this model is fundamentally flawed. That means, that means we have to take the wealth that we have and share it more fairly. So this this question of inequality really is at the heart of this, right? It's a, inequality is at the heart of the climate crisis. It's a, at the heart of the, the broader global environmental crisis. It's at the heart of the housing crisis. And so, you know, it's really critically important that we figure out ways to address this inequality. And then following these issues is that who are taking the biggest risks? Who are, who are the people getting killed? Who are the, I mean, it's always... The closer you are to a natural forest or to something, I mean, if the native people around the world, they are the ones dying, being killed by corrupt thugs uh, all the time. So it's it's a, that's an ongoing struggle. And I guess you met a lot of them now in, in, in Glasgow also. The, they, they are the, the, the front line uh, yeah, no. Fighters in this struggle. No, and let me be clear. That's the most heartbreaking part of the work that I do is almost every day I get an email or a WhatsApp message saying this person has been killed or this person has disappeared. We haven't heard from them. You know, they were they were at a protest. Now they're gone. You know, whether it's Mexico, Brazil, the Philippines, Cambodia. I mean, so, you know, every year, hundreds and hundreds of people are being killed because they're standing up for this planet. And so, you know, the, we call them the kind of the human rights languages, environmental human rights defenders. I just call them heroes for people on the planet. This is a more compelling term in my opinion, but we, we have to protect those people. And the problem is that they're 
they're, they're the ones who are fighting against this voracious financial machine. They're standing in the way of private, private and corporate profits. And so, you know, it, a, a big part of our work is increasing the level of protection for those heroic individuals. Because for me, this is almost like an undertold story that we that we don't report more on on these uh, human rights heroes or environmental heroes. There is actually one ongoing case in in New York right now where a, a lawyer, Stephen Donziger, who has been uh, uh, representing people in Ecuador, where Chevron has been destroying the jungle for years. I'm sure you know the story. Uh, Don Segar is now in prison in New York uh, in almost like a private court case organized by, by Chevron's lawyer. And this is like, it's, it's still not a big story, which it should be. And, and I have a personal r relation to this because I, I'm, I made a film called Bananas uh, where um, I got sued by Dole Food Company, and it's the same group of lawyers. So it's exactly the same lawyers who came after me are now putting him into prison. And this is a company that has actually destroyed the jungle. So what, I mean, you know, you know the Don Seeger story, and I think we all should look into the Stephen Don Seeger. You can follow him on, on Twitter. How do you how do you see this story? What well, it, it's actually it's great. I I thought that you were the director of Bananas, which is a, a movie that I show in my class to talk about uh, you know these these human rights issues and environmental issues and the role of corporations and the role of the legal system. So thanks for that movie and thanks for the sequel too. The, the, the big yeah. boys on watch. Big boys. <laughs> uh, terrific, <laughs> terrific filmmaking and uh, you know the this the thing that gets lost. I think you know Stephen Donziger's prosecution and persecution is it's been like it's such a crazy story the the response against the targeting of that one individual is so over the top but what get lost in the story is the fact that you still have tens of thousands of people living in this area of the amazon which was once obviously like paradise on earth and is now a toxic polluted contaminated mess and this lawsuit and this litigation's been going on since 1992 and 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 literally Billions of dollars have been spent on lawyers, which could have been used to just clean up the bloody mess in the Amazon. So these people are still living in horrific conditions while the, the legal shenanigans carry on. I think that's tragic. You know, with all due respect to Stephen Donziger, yes, he's been prosecuted and persecuted, but he doesn't have clean hands. I mean, there's clear evidence of fraud, fraudulent activity uh, in that court case. So, you know, it's, it's a very, very complex situation and, um, you know, but it's it's typical of these corporations that use every trick in the book to to shut shut down the people who are trying to call them to account, and also shutting down filmmakers because it, they also sued the filmmaker of of Crude or Berlinger. Crude, yeah, that's right. And and he, and and he's also a friend of mine, and he was also suffering a lot. I mean, I mean, and they. They got the outtakes of his material. Yeah, well, you know, that court case, you know, that Ecuadorian situation has spread its tentacles across the world. So there's been litigation in Canada where the lawyers for the indigenous people in Ecuador have tried to collect on the Ecuadorian court decision, which awarded them nine and a half billion dollars in damages. And Chevron's lawyers said in the Canadian litigation that they will fight this case until hell freezes over and then they'll put on skates and they'll keep on fighting. I mean... You know, that just gives you an idea. Like, there, there's no length to which they will not go to fight these types of things. But for me, it just suggests 
so strongly what advocates and grassroots movements, indigenous peoples are up against. And like, as you say, these are heroes fighting these battles because it's, it is so huge, right? I mean, for, for these lawyers and these corporates, this is fluff. This is like nothing for them to keep litigating, 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 spending uber amounts of money. It's not, it's, it's no sweat off their back at all. This is how they play the game. It's such a David Goliath scenario to fight for human rights, for the environment, for housing, whatever. It's just amazing. Um, what, what we're up against, you know, it's, it's so, so then we go back to optimism, I think, because then you say, okay, <laughs> exactly. these are huge forces, but look, there has been incremental change. There is, there are these court cases that, that indigenous peoples and others are winning. Th- there are wins along the way. I see it in my work. So we'll chip away at these they have all the money, but we have the yeah, rights. No, for sure. And there are <laughs> wins and there are incredible things happening. You know, I did a report to the Human Rights Council on good practices in the recognition and implementation of the right to a healthy environment. And it was it was an amazing experience just gathering these stories from around the world. I ended up having to put a, an appendix to my report with over 500 examples of, you know, good news stories that most people just have yeah. no idea about. But I want to come back to what you said, Leilani, because I think it's critically important when you said that you're hearing from governments, they don't have the money. Well, governments just found $20 trillion to deal exactly. with the COVID pandemic. So, you know, it's just a lie for them to say they don't have the money. The money's out there. We live in a world with a $100 trillion economy, right? So the money's there. It's just a matter of priority. And what we, what we have to continue to do is say that these issues, these human rights issues, they have to be a priority. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a very powerful message. The report I'm working on right now is about what I call sacrifice zones, places where there's such intense industrial pollution that the people living in these communities have effectively been sacrificed. I mean, they're not being thrown into the mouth of a burning volcano, but the, the impact on their life is, is tantamount to that, right? I mean, they're suffering from horrific diseases, short life expectancies, living in just kind of these, these kind of Dante's infernos in, in almost every country in the world. And if they have a right to a healthy environment, then their governments have an obligation to do everything in their power. These are the people who are really bearing the, the burdens of the wealthy lives that we are living, whether they're living beside a coal-fired power plant, a, um, a chemical manufacturing facility, a garbage dump. Uh, you know, all of these facilities are the things that are making our lifestyles possible. So we're complicit in this. But I think that focusing on the the human rights of the people who are being left the farthest behind is actually uh, can be very powerful. Friends, this has been an intense and very interesting, inspirational uh, conversation. David, if our listeners would like to know, follow your work in any way, is there a way? Yeah, they can can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, SR Environment. Uh, They can check out uh, the the website, which is also srenvironment.org and... uh, yeah, so I, I encourage people to, to follow along. It's going to be a it's going to be an exciting adventure the next three years. That's cool. I encourage people to follow you too. You're uh, you're an amazing oh, no, advocate. No, you. really, you're you're doing an amazing job as SR, and uh, I know how hard it is. 
I know how hard you're working, uh, but you're doing really an amazing job. So keep going and, and good well, luck in the Well, thanks for the Caribbean. support. And I try to have fun also in, in between. <laughs> Otherwise, it's, yeah. you know, I try to talk about wine, but then I have a friend who is a winemaker in, in France and, and they are suffering the climate yes. big time in France. It's yeah. The winemakers yes. are really now coming up in the forefront of the climate debate in France. So, but still yeah. drink some wine, but it should be then be no, produced and, in a decent and, way. And let me, <laughs> let me say, I live on an island. I get in my kayak. I paddle around. I see otters. I see eagles. I see whales. I mean, and, and this is what I say to everyone. Like, this is the only planet in the universe that supports life that we know of, right? And it's an amazing place. I mean, no matter where you live, nature is absolutely spectacular from the stars in the night sky, the smell of flowers, the, the, the productivity and the strength of insects. I mean, no matter where you live, go outside, connect with nature, and that will that will restore you. That will inspire you. That will replenish you. It's it's the most uh, it's the most amazing thing, uh, I think, and a, a source of constant inspiration mm. for me. I'm with you. What a beautiful what a beautiful ending. Perfect. Then I will just add one more word, and that's solidarity. Going towards funding a podcast called Pushback Talks. How do people show their solidarity, Leilani? <laughs> well, there is well. one way. People can support us through our Patreon account. Uh, we do this for free. We love it. We know it's important, but we need some resources. So if you go to wherever you download Pushback Talks, you'll find our Patreon account. Uh, you can go to patreon.com or whatever it is and look up Pushback Talks. Give us a dollar, a euro. It helps. Thank you for listening. And Leilani, I don't know if you noticed that we are now, but we now have listeners in 121 <gasps> countries. No, we've added a country. We added a country. Which one? It's the north of something that we before had the south of in. It, a country that was one, but it's now two. In a, in a very big continent. North Korea. Uh, no. Sudan. Right. Well, way to go, David. You're much better than me. <laughs> so actually, I always get so it wrong. It, so we, we already <laughs> had listeners in South Sudan, but now we also have a listener in, in Sudan. Wow, that's cool. 121 countries means that we can, we can still have more coming in. So, so tell your friends uh, to listen to, to Pushback Talks and retweet us and, and help promote it. Can I say one more yes. thing? I want to say thank you to Leilani for the inspiring work you're doing on the right to housing. And I want to say thank you for Frederick because these films that you're making, they, they do change people's minds. They do make a difference. So thank you to both of you. That's so nice. That's thank you. Sweetness and love and happiness. Thank you for, for being on. And uh, thank you, Leilani. See you soon again. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Ciao. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week.